1: Thanks to you at home for joining us on (laughs) Alex Wagner tonight, this hour. We have a whole lot to get to this evening, but we start first with election results. I know you thought the elections were over, but nope, they are not. As voters in the Commonwealth of Virginia well know, there was a special election yesterday for a state Senate seat in Virginia Beach. We now have a projected winner in that race, Democrat Aaron Rouse. He defeated Republican Kevin Adams, flipping that state Senate seat from red to blue. And he did it running ads like this.
2: You want to believe it can't happen here, but it could happen sooner than you think. Republicans in Richmond are trying to pass a new ban on abortion in Virginia. And Kevin Adams, he wants to join them to take away women's freedom to make our own personal medical decisions. Kevin Adams would be the deciding vote to ban abortion in Virginia. But your vote can stop him before it's too late.
3: I'm Aaron Rouse, candidate for state senate, and this ad was paid for by Rouse for Senate.
1: Aaron Rouse ran just three TV ads in his campaign, two of them were focused on abortion. With Virginia's Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, pushing for an abortion ban and a closely divided state senate, Rouse sold himself as the last line of defense for reproductive rights in the state. And Aaron Rouse won. Because you know what's really unpopular? Banning abortion. Which voters made abundantly clear during the midterms after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. In every single state where abortion was on the ballot, even deep red Montana and Kentucky, voters came out firmly in support of abortion rights, just as they did in Kansas a few months earlier. And anti-abortion Republicans lost Senate and governor's races in major swing states. Even Donald Trump said Republicans did poorly in the midterms because they were too extreme on abortion. You know, forever, for whatever that is worth. You might think Republicans would take, I don't know, a lesson from all of that, but apparently not. In their first week controlling the House of Representatives, Republicans today made it one of their first orders of business to vote on anti-abortion measures. And it is not Democrats saying this was a bad idea. Here was Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina speaking to reporters before that vote.
4: It's tone deaf at this point because it's never going to pass the Senate. It's never going to get to the president's desk to sign into law. We're only paying the
1: service to the pro-life movement. Wait a second, with Republicans like these, who needs Democrats? But never mind, because when the measures came to the floor of the House today, every single Republican there voted for them, even Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Now, as for exactly what they were voting on, anti-abortion measures are so unpopular, Republicans in the House actually invented something popular-sounding that they could vote on. They created a bill to outlaw something totally made up. It is called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. It makes it a crime for doctors to murder babies that are born alive during an abortion, which, if it were something that happened, would be very much already covered under existing laws against, you know, murder. But it's a moot point, because only in the dark imaginations of Republicans is this something that abortion providers would ever actually do. Do not take it from me. Take it from a doctor. Alice Mann a Democratic state senator in Minnesota where state Republicans are pushing born-alive legislation.
2: This is a perfect example of why politicians should not be making medical decisions, is because we are literally making stuff up and writing laws about it at this exact moment. Um, A child does not come out partway alive and then doctors kill it. That's not a thing, that's not a thing today, it's not a thing tomorrow, it's not a thing 10 years ago, it's not a thing. So for us to legislate things that don't exist in real life, again, perfect example of why politicians should
4: not practice healthcare.
1: Of course, this is just the latest in Republicans' decades-long war on what are generally called late abortions, but which Republicans like to call partial birth abortions, another completely made-up thing. Abortions that take place after 20 weeks of gestation make up just 1% of abortions performed in the United States of America. And they are generally performed because of severe fetal abnormalities, or in some cases because a woman has been unable to obtain an abortion because of the very restrictions Republicans have put in place in state after state. Late abortions are difficult and they are costly, and they are definitely not chosen on a whim. The other measure Republicans uh, in the House approved today condemns violence over the issue of abortion, but not violence against abortion providers, which has spiked in recent years. No, this condemns attacks on anti-abortion facilities, including crisis pregnancy centers. Republicans love to promote crisis pregnancy centers as places that take care of pregnant women. But in fact, crisis pregnancy centers are infamous for falsely advertising themselves as abortion providers and then feeding false anti-abortion information to the pregnant women who come to them in order to stop them from having the abortions they may be seeking. Last year, when NBC News producers visited two crisis pregnancy centers in Texas to ask for counseling, they were told that abortions cause mental illness, cancer, and infertility. Instead of medical advice, a counselor sent away one of the producers away with a pair of knit baby booties, telling her she would pray for her. That's a crisis pregnancy center. This is week one of your new House of Representatives. No to scary-sounding abortion procedures that don't actually exist. Yes, for crisis pregnancy centers that lie to women. They have really got their finger on the pulse of the American voter. Meanwhile... The Republican attorney general in Alabama says women in his state can be prosecuted for taking abortion pills after Republicans spent years saying they would never prosecute women for having abortions. Anti-abortion activists say their next front is to start picketing outside your local Walgreens or CVS because those pharmacy chains will soon start dispensing abortion pills following recent FDA approval. Nothing makes you popular like yelling at people while they try to buy toothpaste. But maybe conservatives figure they don't need to be popular. After all, they've got the Supreme Court and now the U.S. House of Representatives for now. Joining us now is Cecile Richards, former president of Planned Parenthood and the co-chair of American Bridge. Cecile, thanks for being here. Good to see you. Before we get into... The political dimensions of all of this, I think it's really important to demystify what Republicans are trying to do with this actual legislation. These crisis pregnancy centers, for example, I mean, you were the president of Planned Parenthood. What do these crisis pregnancy centers do And, and what happens to women seeking abortions? if they go to one of these things mistakenly?
2: Well, of course, they're completely set up to try to keep women from accessing their right to make their own decisions about pregnancy. You know, we saw them uh, at Planned Parenthood. They're often set up literally next door to a Planned Parenthood. They put out signage that makes it look like a Planned Parenthood. And the whole idea is to deceive women. They do not provide health care. Uh, and now of course they're publicly funded in many of these states. Uh, so it's sort of it it's they are they're doing nothing for women's health care. And I think one of the scariest things that we're seeing now is of course online since so many women are forced online now to try to find health care. Uh, if you if you look up um, to to find a, an abortion providing Health Center, oftentimes you are sent to a crisis pregnancy center. And as you said, part of the whole idea here is to delay giving women information, delay giving them health care to push them later and later into a pregnancy.
1: And then there's the issue of condemning violence in the in the abortion sphere. I mean, again, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. as someone who has seen what people are willing to do to clinics that provide abortions, doctors who provide abortions, I mean, the DOJ, I believe, has created a reproductive rights task force because of the violence directed towards abortion providers. What, in your experience, have you seen
2: in terms of the threats and the, the risk that abortion providers have to take on? Well, I mean, it's always been true, and I, I think that, you know, I'm grateful that the Department of Justice is taking this seriously. It's really important. And of course, What's happened, and I see this in my home state of Texas, is that the fear that women have now to even ask someone for advice, much less go to a health center, it's tremendous. And that is really what the Republicans have tried to do, is create a sense of fear Mm -hmm. among doctors, healthcare providers, clinic escorts, women seeking care. Um, It's terrifying. And, And it's particularly terrifying in these states that have banned abortion. You know, we've been seeing stories coming out of Louisiana, Texas, women who can't even get assistance for miscarrying right now because doctors and health care providers are turning them away. They're terrified. Yeah, because they, they, they don't know. It, you know, it's so unclear. These laws were passed not by medical professionals, but by politicians. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a scary time for women. Speaking of the politicians
1: passing laws for things that are not rooted in reality, this idea that there are, that are doctors killing babies that are born after unsuccessful abortion procedures as that Minnesota state representative said, it is not a thing. It is not a thing in the past. It is not a thing in the president. It is not a thing in the future. It really seems like Republicans want to do something on the issue of, of abortion. And so they've created this confection that on paper sounds like a terrible, terrible thing that, of course, they want to vote
2: against, but doesn't, in fact, exist in reality. Right. And they know, and they know that. And they know that's false. But I think your point earlier is important. Every single Republican voted for this. This yeah. is not just the extreme wing of the party. The extreme wing of the party has become the Republican Party. The fact that they're the first week of Congress, this is the priority of the Republican Party. After seeing an election in which overwhelmingly candidates were defeated, not just by Democrats, but by independent Republican voters who said, we do not want a country where politicians are in charge of pregnancy and the most intimate decisions that people make about about their future and about their family.
1: I mean, why you're a strategist. There is a political reality here. When Lindsey Graham proposed that national federal uh, 15-week abortion ban— There was great consternation among people who are not in Congress, but in the Republican Party. This is a bad idea. We saw the referendums. We saw what voters had to say about the issue. And yet, as you point out, this is their first week in Congress. Do they pay a price for
2: this? Do they think they're insulated from this somehow? I just, the political calculation here escapes me. Right. Well, I think there's two things. One, of course, they already did pay a political price for this because they got wiped out in so many races across across the country in the midterm elections, and particularly on this Issue. But the other problem is exactly what we saw with Kevin McCarthy. It's like, you know, we used to say in Texas, you, you gotta dance with them that brung you. The, the people that got Kevin McCarthy uh, in the position he's in right now are the extreme fringe of the Republican Party. And they are driving the agenda. And so I think what we're gonna see and can continue to see both in Congress and at the state level is the Republican Party continuing to pass further and further restrictions on abortion, on reproductive health care, uh, and it's not popular, and And they are going to pay a political price. They already have.
1: I just, I, I, you know, the fact that every single Republican who is there voted for this, the fact that Nancy Mace says this right. is lip service and then goes and votes for it. I mean, this isn't, these people aren't all running for Speaker of the House. They don't need right. all these, you know, they don't need to prove anything, right? What they do need to do is hang on to their swing states seats in
2: two years, Right. But I think I mean, we're going to see, I think, in this next election cycle, it was bad enough for Republicans this time. I think we're going to see in the next cycle um, as more and more stories come out about what the impact is on families and our women uh, uh, of these abortion bans, it's going to become even more unpopular. This is not going to age well for the Republicans. uh, And these kinds of votes showing that this is what this party is about. It's not popular. Yeah, the the
1: longer this is in place, the more women, the more families that are affected by this, the more real the problem becomes for Republicans who have put their, planted their flag on the side of the aisle. Cecile Richards, former president of Planned Parenthood and co-chair of American Bridge. It is always so good to see you. Thanks for joining me, Cecile. Great to see you, too. We have much more ahead this hour. Republicans are still getting it wrong when it comes to the discovery of classified documents in the private offices of President Biden. But next... The lying congressman who lies has lost critical support as even more revelations about his strange lies and questionable finances come to light. Will he resign? Who can make him resign? New York Congressman Dan Goldman joins me to discuss. Coming up, stay with us.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.
5: It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. George
6: Santos's campaign last year was a campaign of deceit, lies, and fabrication. He's not welcome here at Republican headquarters for meetings or at any of our events. As I said, he's disgraced the House of Representatives and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. Today, on behalf of the Nassau County Republican Committee, I am calling for his immediate resignation.
1: That was the chair of the Nassau County Republican Party, the county where Congressman George Santos's congressional district is located, calling for Santos's resignation this morning. The loss of local party support is devastating for any congressperson, let alone a congressperson who was caught lying about everything from his resume to his identity, to his religion, to being on a winning college volleyball team. He lied about all of those things. But today, even as the world now knows that he lied about things that no congressman has ever taken the time to lie about before... George Santos remains defiant.
4: Will you step down? Guys,
1: I will okay, not. Guys, guys, guys so you got to give need us a little bit yeah. of space here this way. The New, New York
5: Republicans are calling you a disgrace. Pardon me.
6: Pardon me. What Excuse me, guys. The Powers are trying to get in the elevator. Excuse what? us.
1: Now, you would think, given the magnitude of Santos's lies and his complete loss of support at the local level, you would think that leaders of the National Republican Party wouldn't leave the question of whether or not Santos gets to stay in Congress up to Santos himself. You would think that the Speaker of the House would not stand for that. You would be wrong.
5: Are you gonna take any action against him at this point? Are any of these allegations acceptable to you?
1: What are the charges against him?
5: Well, I mean, Is there he's... a
0: charge against him? You know, in America today, you're innocent until proven guilty.
1: Speaker Kevin McCarthy finds himself in a tough spot. He is hanging onto power with a paper-thin majority, a handful of votes for which he traded everything but the Speaker's gavel itself. And George Santos voted for him to be the Speaker of the House 15 times, every single vote. So whether or not McCarthy actually wants Santos to be a member of Congress, he needs Santos to be a member of Congress to maintain his majority. So with Santos not resigning willingly and McCarthy not taking action, what happens now? Well, it turns out McCarthy's innocent until proven guilty comment might actually be the path forward here. While it may not be a crime to lie about where you went to college or whether or not you're Jewish or whether or not you were the star striker on a college volleyball team, it is a crime to lie about your campaign finances. And to put it lightly, politely even, Santos' campaign finances are fishy. The New York Times reports that Santos' campaign paid a housekeeping company called Cleaner 123... It paid that company $11,000. That company then rented a suburban Long Island home that neighbors say it appeared Santos was living in. In Santos's local Long Island election, he somehow managed to charge the campaign for $40,000 of air travel and $30,000 in hotels and Airbnbs for stays in places like Tennessee and Virginia, Texas, Florida, California and Kansas and Michigan. The list goes on. And again, this is all for a local Long Island congressional campaign. To top it all off, the campaign claimed more than 800 expenses below $200. That's the threshold for needing to keep receipts for a campaign purchase. More than 30 of those expenses were pegged at $199.99, which is a penny below the reporting threshold. As I said, fishy. Fishy enough that yesterday, two other New York congressmen, Dan Goldman and Richie Torres, formally asked the House House Ethics Committee to investigate George Santos. Joining me now is one of those congressmen himself, Dan Goldman of New York. Congressman Goldman, first of all, welcome to Congress. And thank you for being with us this evening.
3: Great to be with you, Alex.
1: So. I mean, just to get a sense of how much you normally spend on air travel and hotels, I think Nick Lalota, another representative from Long Island, spent nine hundred bucks on hotel stays, three thousand dollars on airfare, nine hundred dollars on taxis. Did you spend anywhere close to forty thousand dollars on airfare and thirty thousand dollars on hotels in the course of your campaign?
3: Nowhere close. These are are absurd expenses that no one in a highly competitive local race for Congress would ever spend. And you listed a a laundry list of questionable expenses. But what I want to emphasize is I think it may be much more serious than that because those are campaign expenses. But the question is, how did he get the money into his campaign to spend it? He gave $700,000 of his own money to the campaign. And where did he get that? From an entity that he created during the campaign that all of a sudden was got an infusion of a millions of dollars that he then paid himself, which he acknowledged he paid himself and ultimately siphoned to his campaign. There are red flags of campaign finance fraud all around that conduct.
1: We on that note, we have some new reporting from The Washington Post this evening. Prior to the campaign, Santos was working at an organization called Harbor City Capital, which was later accused of a classic Ponzi scheme. Turns out Santos was working there later than initially reported. He was working there as recently as April of 2021. In May of 2021, he creates this organization of which you speak, the DeVolder organization, which then all of a sudden is flush with cash, including uh, enough to pay him a salary of $750,000 and lend his campaign $700,000. Do you think it is possible that the money that was piped into DeVolder could have had its origin in a classic Ponzi scheme?
3: I think it's too hard to tell. I don't want to speculate about that. But I do think what there has been some reporting on is that some of the money that went into DeVolder, some of the quote unquote clients that he claimed but did not disclose, importantly, uh, were large Republican donors who may have very well been using the DeVolder organization, um, as a pass-through to get to George Santos's campaign and to allow them to exceed campaign finance limits. Now, a lot of this is speculation, and that's why Congressman Torres and I asked the Ethics Committee in the House to investigate these very finances to see if he violated the Ethics in Government Act there's a parallel investigation in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of New York that I'm sure is also looking at this conduct as well. But in Congress here, if we are to have a member of Congress walking around who's stark violation of the ethics laws that apply to all of us, uh, that's unacceptable. It demeans the integrity of the institution, of each one of us here. It eliminates uh, our ability to ask Americans to follow the law if there are members of our own body who cannot do that or won't do that. And so that's why we asked for this investigation yesterday.
1: Well, do you think it's going to happen? I mean, we have saw Kevin McCarthy's position on this is basically... Until he's charged with something, he's my guy. Uh, the House Ethics Committee is bipartisan, but it will have a Republican chair. We don't know who that chair is. Is your expectation that they'll take this matter up, given how egregious at least the evidence appears to be?
3: Yes, our expectation is that they will. It is a, a committee that has e- evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats with nonpartisan staff. And this is exactly what the purpose of the committee is. Um, and I would expect George Santos will cooperate fully if he says he's done nothing wrong, nothing unethical, then he should have no problems turning over the documents to the committee. Um, Kevin McCarthy is, is skating on very thin ice on this one, because if your argument is that you're welcome to be a member of the Republican Party until you're convicted of a crime and you can deceive and defraud the voters of your district in order to get into Congress as much as you want, as long as you escape criminal charges, that's a lot of leeway for a party that is already very anti-democratic.
1: I just got to say, what a start to the 118th Congress. What a start for the New York delegation. It is... uh, Did you ever think your congressional career would begin like this, with an ethics committee referral for someone in your own state delegation?
3: No, and nor did I think the the first thing that I would agree on with other members of the New York delegation on the other side of the aisle is that George Santos should resign. But there are now four Republican members uh, of the New York delegation who have done exactly that. And I do agree with that.
1: Bipartisanship ain't dead, at least in the Empire State, when it comes to George Santos. Congressman Dan Goldman of New York, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Still ahead tonight, I will talk to Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker about the major bill he signed, making Illinois the ninth state to do something huge to address the problem of gun violence. And the discovery of a second batch of Biden classified documents has Attorney General Merrick Garland mulling whether to appoint a second special counsel. A view from the Justice Department on all that. That's coming up next. Stick around.
0: Caesar's Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesar's rewards.
5: It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable.
1: Late this afternoon, NBC News was first to report that aides to President Biden have found a second batch of classified documents from his time in the Obama administration at a second location, separate from the private D.C. office where the first ones were found. We do not yet know much about these documents, how many there were, the level of classification or where exactly they were found. But already Republicans have seized on this to try and draw a parallel between this situation and Trump's mishandling of hundreds of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago.
3: I think if you believe a special counsel is necessary to assure the public about the handling of classified documents by Donald Trump, you should apply a special counsel to the mishandling of do- classified documents by President Biden when he was vice
2: president.
1: In addition to Senator Graham, the new Republican chair of the Oversight Committee, James Comer, has sent a letter to the White House Counsel's Office demanding all of the documents retrieved from Biden's personal office. And today, the House Judiciary Committee Republican Twitter account, which Republicans use as their primary outlet for online trolling, that account tweeted, did the FBI raid the Biden Center? Trying to suggest some kind of double standard in how the DOJ has treated Trump and how it's treated Biden. But the question of why the FBI didn't raid President Biden's personal office may be more telling than Republicans want to admit. The FBI only searched Mar-a-Lago after Trump refused to turn over documents for months, then declined to fully comply with the subpoena seeking their return, and then had his lawyers falsely certify that there were no longer classified documents on the premises. Contrast that with how the Biden administration has handled this. Biden's lawyers discovered the first batch of documents before voluntarily turning them over to the National Archives, which, by the way, did not appear to know the documents were missing in the first place. This latest batch of documents was also reportedly discovered by Biden's own aides as part of their efforts to cooperate in the matter. Even without all these details, it is clear that the behavior of both presidents in these cases is radically different. But that does not change the fact that the Justice Department must now now deal with both of these cases at the same time. Tonight, The New York Times reports that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, was made aware of the existence of the Biden documents before he made the decision to appoint Jack Smith as special counsel overseeing investigations into President Trump. The Times also reports tonight that the discovery of the missing Biden documents could force Garland into appointing a second special counsel. Joining us now is Tali Fahardi and Weinstein, a former federal and New York state prosecutor. Tali, thanks for being here. Thank you. So who wants Merrick Garland's job? It seems like the worst job in Washington, D.C. But let's just look at the timing here. The fact that he knew that this was looming on the horizon before he appoints Jack Smith as a special counsel looking into, among other things, Trump's retention of classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. Um, Do you think it's inevitable that a second special counsel is appointed for Biden because that's what he has to do politically, at least?
4: I don't think it's inevitable, but I think that if it's even a close call, then Merrick Garland is going to appoint that second special counsel. And one of the advantages of special counsel is that they do explaining in a way that prosecutors Mm -hmm generally don't do. I mean, prosecutors we usually say that we speak through indictments and through jury verdicts and not much else. But special counsel issue reports and they talk about the investigative steps they've taken and the attorney general can disclose those. And that might be really helpful here to have two of them because the public is going to need to understand what to me is still very clear that these are very different cases, and they are not similar, and so they can't be treated
1: similarly. It seems like the essence of this is the willfulness of the act, right? And that seems so abundantly clear-cut. We know, we've cataloged the ways in which Trump was refused to hand over these documents. The Biden team is literally pushing paper at the National Archives saying, we took this by mistake, here, have it back. And yet there seems to be some, for some, uh, some gray area. Do you see I mean, do you see parallels here like put on your Fox News hat for a (laughs) moment and explain to me how these cases beyond Mm -hmm. the fact that the paper was found in their offices are similar. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have a Fox <laughs> News hat, <laughs> Alex, but uh,
4: you know, facts really do matter, and so far, you know, facts can change, they develop, they come, you know, they come to light, but on these facts, these are entirely different situations, which is why I would much rather be Biden today than Trump, even though this was a really bad day politically, obviously, for President Biden, and I would definitely rather be Biden's lawyer than Trump's lawyer, thinking about criminal Well, yes, it matter of always, and today, you know, what would it take for the facts to be similar? Right. We would we would see, for example, that Biden purposely hit this these documents. No evidence of that, that he obstructed justice when someone tried to get them back. On the contrary, as you said, they've said here, please take them, that he left them in some place like a hotel that people walk through, right? Also not happened so far that there were hundreds of them and not tens of them. Volume is an aggravating factor also. Uh, Interesting. Right? Because the DOJ doesn't prosecute the statute unless there are aggravating factors, which is what I've laid out. And that's because the point of a criminal prosecution is not to punish sloppiness, but to punish intentional bad acts. Criminal acts. And we don't have any of that here.
1: Do you what are they going to do to investigate this? We know that there's a U.S. attorney in Chicago who's been assigned to this by Merrick Garland. Is he going to have to interview President Biden? I mean, how are they going to determine all of this? Do you have a sense?
4: I think that that would be way down the road. So, so far, they've done a harm assessment, which is what you do when you find that and national security documents have gone awry. And and now we turn to whether there should even be a criminal investigation. And my understanding is that's what the attorney general is thinking about now. And an investigation would look for the factors that I've talked about, willfulness, obstruction, the types of documents, who got to see them, uh, why did other people get to see them if they did. And the question of who might need to be a witness is so far away. From any of that to me right now
1: do you how does this complicate merrick garland's movements behind the scenes i mean a lot of people said on its face the mar-a-lago documents case is a case where you have a clear-cut indictment of president trump january 6 mm-hmm. is another piece of special counsel jack smith's purview but a lot of folks on the outside have said if Mar- merrick garland is looking for an indictment in the coming calendar year mm-hmm. it's probably mar-a-lago do you think the surfacing of this biden document mm-hmm situation, we will call it, changes his calculation about the timetable for a potential indictment on Mar-a-Lago? No, because
4: uh, that starts to sound like a political calculation and not a legal one. And I think that this is still the the tighter case so far. You know, we saw some reporting today about subpoenas uh, from the special counsel relating to January 6th that were really broad that told me that they haven't really honed in yet in those investigations. They're still trying to get a lay of the land. These were not surgical subpoenas. So I think that this is probably the first of the cases that is going to resolve. And that has not changed what we already knew. I think what is different realistically is that there's going to have to be explaining. And, you know, it was, it was really unusual when Merrick Garland, right after the Mar-a-Lago search, went to the podium and he said, yeah. well, this is what a search warrant is. And here's how we got probable cause. And that, you know, stretching in that way, I think there's going to have to be more of that, uh, to build confidence in the rule of law and what he's doing.
1: Lots of transparency from a man who probably has no interest in putting himself before cameras to explain why things are happening the way they are at the DOJ. Tali for Hardy and Weinstein. 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 Weinstein, former federal and New York state prosecutor. It's great to see you. Thank you for your time. Thank with you us so next, much. Tali. Coming up next, the state of Illinois did something huge in the fight against gun violence. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker joins me coming up to discuss. Stay with us.
6: I couldn't be prouder to say that we got it done. Illinois now officially prohibits the sale and distribution of these mass killing machines and rapid fire devices. I'm signing this legislation tonight so that it can take immediate effect and we can end the sale of these weapons of war as soon as possible.
1: There is some very big news out of the state of Illinois. The state's Democratic governor, J.B. Pritzker, signed a bill into law late last night banning the sale of assault weapons in the nation's sixth largest state. That bill prohibits the sale, delivery, and purchase of assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. It also makes it illegal to own and use devices that increase the firing rate of semi-automatic weapons. And it would require those who currently own these weapons to register them with the Illinois State Police. The new law comes six months after a shooting in the Chicago suburb of Highland Park during a Fourth of July parade that killed seven people and wounded dozens more. With the bill signing, Illinois becomes the ninth state in the nation to ban the sale of assault-style weapons. Joining us now is the man himself, J.B. Pritzker, governor of the great state of Illinois. Governor Pritzker, thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, congratulations on getting this done. And for other governors or citizens out there who have seen the NRA basically have legislators in a stranglehold, how did you get this done and how did you get it done now?
6: Well, this is a multi-year overnight success. Uh, the truth is that we've been fighting this battle for some time. Uh, we have a very strong NRA affiliate that's here in the state of Illinois and and other associated uh, organizations that are fighting every effort of ours to get these weapons of war off the streets. Uh, but I think two things happened. One is we had, frankly, several uh, mass shootings that occurred in the state, not just in Highland Park, but uh, just recently at Benito Juarez High School. uh, Two young boys, 14 and 15, were killed and others wounded. Uh, The McDonald's in downtown Chicago, uh, nine people were shot, two killed. uh, And these were done with semi-automatic weapons or weapons that had been altered to make them essentially automatic weapons. Uh, and then, of course, the Highland Park shooting where there was an AR style uh, rifle used. So uh, that plus the fact that we had a very successful uh, November election for Democrats who are in favor of gun safety legislation. And so we were able to bring all that together uh, here in early January and get something very important done.
1: When you talk about the NRA, they've already said that, well, the the state gun lobby has said that, that, well, the State Rifle Association has said the challenge is accepted. The Illinois State Rifle Association will see the state of Illinois in court. Are you concerned at all that the law could be overturned?
6: Look, of course, they're going to try to take this to court. They do this every time something passes that keeps people safe in the state. Uh, But the fact is that it is now law in the state of Illinois. We have outlawed assault weapons. Uh, We have outlawed the switches that turn a normal weapon into an automatic weapon. Uh, And the success that we've achieved is keeping families safe now. Uh, We believe that the court challenge that they'll bring will be unsuccessful, uh, and that will successfully defend our new law.
1: You mentioned, I think importantly, that this is a, a law that's aiming to keep people safe. And yet you've already seen what I think is pretty staggering pushback from sheriffs, from law enforcement, who don't plan to enforce the law requiring residents who own some of this weaponry to register with the the state police. I think uh, sheriffs and counties, including Winnebago, Ogle, Stephenson, and Lee have issued statements calling this law a violation of the Second Amendment and saying they're not going to check, they're not going to have their offices checked to ensure that lawful gun owners register their weapons with the state. I mean, what do you do about that problem?
6: Well, it's political grandstanding by elected officials. These are elected sheriffs. Uh, They are Republicans. They're in favor of uh, more guns, not less uh, on the streets, which doesn't make any sense to me because all the other law enforcement in our state are very much in favor of taking assault weapons off the streets. So, uh, frankly, uh, they're the outliers. I know they're loud. Uh, in their opposition to this. But it's our state police uh, and law enforcement across the state that will, in fact, uh, enforce this law. And these outlier sheriffs uh, will comply or, frankly, they'll you know have to answer to the voters.
1: I think um, for those of us who have witnessed, who've read the news about these mass shootings happening all over the country and little being done about them. It is, I think everybody should be uh, breathing a collective sigh of relief that at least in one state, action is being taken um, with the leadership of a governor who just won re-election, Governor Pritzker of Illinois. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on this win.
6: Thank you, Alex.
1: We have one more story for you tonight. After more than three decades in the making, we are seeing major progress on something that was once the looming catastrophe for an entire generation. That's coming up next. Stay with us. Come take a ride back in the Wayback Machine with me to the 1980s and 1990s when people talked a lot about the ozone layer.
3: The ozone bubble surrounding the Earth helps make life possible on this planet by screening out harmful ultraviolet rays. But there is a new warning tonight that depletion of that ozone layer by man-made chemical gases could cause a health catastrophe here.
1: In the years since then, America stopped talking about the hole in the ozone and appeared to have forgotten about the fact that it was a catastrophe. It was a huge deal, and then it was just sort of gone from conversation, like Garfield or Chips Ahoy. That is, until this week, when we got some very good news. That hole in the ozone, it's finally on the mend. After more than three decades since scientists first discovered a hole in the planet's ozone layer, leading experts backed by the United Nations said the layer is on its way to full recovery. As it turns out, making the ozone the pressing global crisis of a generation was a good thing. In 1987, 46 countries signed a treaty known as the Montreal Protocol, and they agreed to phase out dozens of synthetic chemicals that were commonly found in things like refrigerants and hairspray, chemicals that were tied to the destruction of the ozone layer. That treaty now has nearly 200 signatories, and the result is clear. If current policies stay in place, the ozone layer is on track to recover by the year 2040. Global action to solve a major environmental problem worked. And now, in the year 2023, we can look back on those choices we made in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and know with certainty that they were the right ones. At least most people think so. Most people who aren't still weirdly stuck in the 1980s.
6: In the old days, you put the hairspray on, it was good. Today, you put the hairspray on, it's good for 12 minutes, right? But, you know, they say that you can't... I said, wait a minute. So if I take hairspray... And if I spray it in my apartment, which is all sealed, and you're telling me that affects the ozone layer. Yes, I say, no way, folks, no way.
1: Way, way. And as it turns out, the hole in the ozone is healing. Other catastrophes, however, continue. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.
0: Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards.